Last week we looked at Psalm 10, and uh, Psalm 10 really begins a small section of, a little subsection of the Psalter uh, that begins in Psalm 10 and ends in Psalm 14, and it focuses on the, the topic of people who reject Yahweh and His anointed King. We're going to address that topic, or rather the, the Psalms address that topic from several different angles, and we'll be seeing that over the coming weeks. Uh, but for now, let's read Psalm 11. And since these words are breathed out by God, uh, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? Psalm 11, to the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You may be seated. And as you're, uh, as you're seated, would, uh, would you bow with me once more in prayer as we open God's word together? Father, as we open your word together, I pray that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Lord, teach us, reprove us, correct us, train us in righteousness. Lord, equip us for every good work. Make us complete as we seek to be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord, work by the power of your Holy Spirit in this time through your word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we live in a country that seems to be moving further and further away from the values of the Bible. And in that culture, Christians who believe what the Bible says, who hold to what Christians have believed for thousands of years, seem to be increasingly marginalized. Now, to be fair, Our situation is nowhere close to the kinds of persecution that uh, Dalen was praying about earlier, the the kinds of persecution that many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world are experiencing. Uh, I heard someone yesterday on a podcast uh, talk about some Christians in one part of the world who, before they go to church on Sunday mornings, they make sure to dress extra warm because they're not sure if they'll be going back home afterward. Well, we're, we're far from that point, but nevertheless... In terms of direction, our country seems to be trending further away from the Bible rather than closer to it. Now, sin is nothing new. 
Sin has been present in every nation and in every age. But in our recent history as a nation anyway, it seems that uh, our nation has, has left a time when society values what the Bible values and we're entering a time when our society is condemning what the Bible values and valuing what the Bible condemns. So then, how are Christians to live in that environment? How are the people of God who value the Word of God to live in a culture that is moving further and further away from God and His Word? If we want to honor God, we, we want to believe the Bible, live according to it, what do we do when it seems like everyone around us is moving in the opposite direction? Well, Psalm 11 was written for just such a scenario. Here's the big idea of Psalm 11. The people of God can make it in a society that rejects God because God is on his throne. The people of God can make it in a society that rejects God because God is on his throne. We're going to see that truth unpacked throughout Psalm 11. Uh, But as Psalm 11 wants uh, to, to communicate that truth, Psalm 11 also wants us to apply that truth in two specific ways. And we're going to see those two in, uh, in two sections of Psalm 11. First, resist the temptation to flee. And second, take refuge in the righteous God. Let's look first at Psalm 11's invitation to resist the temptation to flee in verses 1 through 3. Resist the temptation to flee. Well, as David begins this psalm, we get a sense of the whole premise of the psalm in the opening verse, verse 1. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? So David begins by stating his trust in Yahweh. He trusts Yahweh. He finds refuge in Yahweh. He he has entrusted his very life to this God. Why does he start there? Why does David say that as his opening line? Because it is with this trust in Yahweh that David combats the bad counsel of a pessimistic voice. David is basically singing Psalm 11 to this pessimist, to pessimistic naysayers. Uh, It's not totally clear who is making this pessimistic statement that we have in verses 1 through 3. This might be the taunt of David's enemy. We've got you surrounded. You might as well flee. Uh, This might be the bad counsel of David's fearful advisors Hey, it looks like the enemy's gaining ground. There's no way we're going to win this thing. We're going to lose. Let's get out of here with our lives. Or this might even be the fears and doubts of David's own heart. You know, this is really bad. Maybe I should just give up and run away. Well, whoever this pessimist is who's saying these things that David addresses, uh, notice what the pessimist is saying. Run. Flee. Fly like a a scared little bird to your mountain. Escape. But David's response is, 
how can you say that to my soul? What gives David such confidence? Why would he respond like that? Because he takes refuge in Yahweh. David is saying, it's ridiculous that you would tell me to flee when I'm trusting in Yahweh. And so right here in verse 1, we have the, the two choices that David is given here. Flee or take refuge in Yahweh. And these aren't just the choices that David had. Uh, they're the choices that the people of God in every generation have in various circumstances. David puts this song in the mouths of God's people, and as he does so, he gives it to them to sing when they're faced with the same choice, when they're faced with the same situation. Will you flee, people of God, or will you take refuge in Yahweh? David ultimately is writing this psalm and putting it in the mouths of God's singing people to persuade them to trust their God, even in dire conditions. Well, as the the voice of the pessimist continues, why would the pessimist suggest fleeing? What's the reason why David should flee or the upright should flee? Look at verse 2. For, behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. Well, right out of the gate, as we see those terms wicked and upright, and we think about who these characters are in this psalm, uh, we need to be careful not to hear caricatures when we hear the words wicked and upright. So when you hear the word wicked, don't just think like Hitler. When you hear upright, don't just think Mother Teresa. Who are the wicked? They're those who reject Yahweh, those who reject his law. The wicked are those who disregard Yahweh as God. The ones who, uh, as Psalm 10 and 14 say in their heart, there is no God. God's not going to hold me accountable. They're those who don't bow to Yahweh's anointed king. In, In the original context, don't even think necessarily about Gentiles outside of the nation of Israel. Uh, Think even Jews within the borders of Israel. Some even believe that David wrote this psalm when Saul was pursuing him, and it was those who were in hiding with David who were the ones saying, hey, we need to flee like like a bird to the mountain. Look at these enemies surrounding us. On the other hand, who are the upright? Not the perfect. It's those who know and love Yahweh. It's the people of God. It's those who seek to do God's will. Those who are wanting to walk in the law of the Lord. Those who follow the anointed as king. And what we're told about these two groups of people is that the wicked have the upright in their sights. So if the upright are like a bird... The wicked are like a hunter, ready to shoot under the cloak of darkness. The wicked have taken aim, they're they're locked and loaded. That's the picture. Remember, this is poetry, so it's not necessarily that the wicked are literally trying to kill the upright, but they are trying to, in some way, defeat them. 
the wicked are not interested in peacefully coexisting with the upright. They do not bow to Yahweh, and they're opposing the upright who do obey God's law. It seems that the wicked want a society in which everyone can do whatever is right in their own eyes. And the upright, who want a society that submits to the law of Yahweh, are seen as obstacles to getting to that end. Well, the counsel of the pessimist concludes in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Those foundations seem to be the foundations of society, the principles of law and order, the principles of justice, the cultural values, the moral standards that the nation is built on. And in this case, the foundations are specifically the law of Yahweh, God's will for their nation and society, the principles that, in this case, the upright are wanting to maintain. But the pessimist asks, once those foundations are gone in society, what have you got left? What can you do? If, if we take these by force, what can, you, what can you do to fix this? What can the righteous do? Uh, the expectation of the questioner, even uh, the person asking this question hypothetically, is that the, the foundations are basically as good as destroyed. The wicked have already taken aim. The destructions of the foundation are inevitable. And so those who want to do whatever is right in their own eyes seem to have won the battle for society. And if that happens, the upright lose. That's the whole ballgame. So it seems inevitable that the upright will be marginalized or even outright ostracized. So the pessimist says, you might as well flee like a bird to your mountain. All is lost. Well, for those of us who know the Lord and, and, and want to follow the Bible and, and believe what the Bible says, when we see those who do not love the Bible gaining ground in our society, as we see American culture deviate more and more from godliness, as we See, Christians who believe the Bible become marginalized and even ostracized. In what ways are you tempted to flee? What mountains are you tempted to flee to for refuge? For you, maybe fleeing looks like isolation. I'm gonna. I, I know which way the winds are blowing, and so I'm gonna. I'm gonna get off the grid and become self-sustaining. I'm only gonna spend time with like-minded people in my little bubble. I'll take my kids out of public school and bring them home. And to be clear, there's nothing wrong with being self-sustaining. There's nothing wrong with being with like-minded people. There's nothing wrong with homeschooling. But the question is, what's my motivation? Am I doing what I'm doing out of fear of the Lord or fear of the world? Is this just my heart wanting to flee like a bird to my mountain? Maybe you're tempted to flee to the mountain of political power. Maybe you think security is found in aligning yourself with a, a voting block. 
You know, maybe I don't totally agree with them, but hey, at least I'm safe within this mountain. And uh, maybe as, as they take power, I can find the safety that I'm looking for. And again, it comes back to the question, what is my motive? Am I doing what I'm doing because I fear that the world as I know it is going to be lost and someone has to do something to preserve it? Because the voice of the pessimist wants the upright to believe that all is lost. The voice of the pessimist wants the upright to fear and live in fear. The voice of the pessimist wants the upright to flee to a mountain. But the pessimist is wrong. This counselor, whoever he may be, in verses 1 through 3, is wrong. The pessimist does not have a correct view of the world. The pessimist does not understand the true nature of things. The one who would say, flee like a bird to your mountain, doesn't understand the reality of what is going on in the world. And that is why the people of God must resist the temptation to flee. Instead, what should we do? Well, that brings us to our second point. Take refuge in the righteous God. Take refuge in the righteous God. That's my son giving me an amen. Take refuge in the righteous God. We're going to see that in verses 4 through 7. Ultimately, David is not persuaded to flee. Despite this voice telling him to flee, he actually considers that idea preposterous. Why? Because he has taken refuge in Yahweh. Why does having Yahweh as his refuge give David such confidence? Well, he explains in verse 4, which is the central truth of this psalm around which everything else revolves. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The central truth around which everything else in this psalm revolves is that God is on his throne in heaven. And Yahweh's throne is a seat of judgment. Because he is the creator, all creatures are accountable to him. Not only that, as the judge from the throne of heaven, he sees all and he evaluates all. All, and he will have the final say. Why is this such a game-changing truth for this scenario? Well, because the difference between the upright and the wicked is not that uh, there's these, just these two groups and one wants things to be one way and one wants things to be another way and it's just kind of survival of the fittest and whoever's stronger defeats the one who's their opponent and whoever wins gets to decide how things are going to be. That is not the reality of things. Everything changes if God is on his throne. If God is on his throne, then we don't just have on earth these two groups of people kind of trying to muscle their way to the top, muscle their way to superiority, and who, you know, might makes right, whoever wins gets to, to, to have free reign. No, if God is on his throne, that changes everything. Because the true difference between these two groups of people is that the upright want to submit 
to the God of heaven, and the wicked want to oppose the God of heaven. So what that means is that even if, for a time on earth, if the wicked have power in society over the upright, the upright have not lost, finally. Because in the end, Yahweh on the throne will judge all people. He is the one who determines the final outcome. He is the one who will work final justice in the end. So success is not found ultimately by humans who muscle their way into superiority over other humans who disagree with them. Success is found ultimately by humans who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God and submit to his law, even when others have muscled their way into superiority over them. Yahweh is on the throne. So the people of God can make it even in a society that rejects him. Well, from his throne in heaven, as Yahweh's eyes see the children of men, what does he see? What's his evaluation? Look at verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So verse 4 says that Yahweh tests all people, but here David especially highlights how God evaluates and tests the righteous. The word test paints a picture of gold or silver being refined by a fire. Even as the upright experience opposition, God is purifying them in the fire of their suffering. As they are squeezed by their circumstances, it gives the opportunity to reveal who God has made them. When God tested Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac, the difficulty of that trial meant that whatever Abraham was on the inside was going to come out. And that test demonstrated that Abraham had faith in Yahweh. Well, likewise, when the upright feel hunted by the bows of the wicked, they will be exposed for who they are. God wants to use difficulty to prove the upright's faith in him. The Lord tests the righteous. On the other hand, David says God's soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Now, this is a difficult truth of Scripture. It's not one that we often meditate on. It's not going to be found on a coffee mug anytime soon. Uh, in fact, we usually believe that the Bible teaches the opposite of this. But this is a truth not only is here, we've already seen it in the Psalms back in Psalm 5 and verse 5, that the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God so hates the wicked, David says. And, and God must hate the wicked. As verse 7 will say, the reason for this is that God is righteous by his very nature, by his very character. This is who he is. He is righteous. And, and so he must 
feel this way about the wicked who are unrighteous. Uh, Now, we need to understand that to say that God hates the wicked, uh, we need to understand what that statement is and what it is not. What it is, is God's righteous assessment. It's his righteous assessment. Uh, It's important to recognize this isn't some sort of flaky emotional response. It's not some unfair bias like, ah, I hate that guy. Uh, it, It is a just calculated, righteous assessment. God's hatred of the wicked is his just evaluation based in his just character. He sees the wicked defying his law, committing acts of violence, performing evil deeds, and he he does not respond with favor. He doesn't see that and say, oh, you know, I love that. just makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. No, he is not pleased by wickedness. He has a righteous hatred for those who are wicked. He has a righteous hatred for those who love violence. And, And as a sidebar, remember this. If you see society going a way you don't want, and your response is to love violence, you're giving yourself over to that which God hates. Just a sidebar, but back to this statement here in verse 5. In a way, this connects back to the question that was asked in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, this verse helps to answer that question. What can the righteous do? They can trust God on His throne. They can trust that even as the foundations of society are destroyed, they are being tested by a righteous God. The hope of the upright, notice throughout this psalm, the hope of the upright is not that the foundations will not be destroyed. The hope of the upright is that even though the foundations are destroyed, God's throne still stands and it will not be shaken. And he will work final justice in the end. He will right every wrong. Well, in light of Yahweh's righteous hatred of the wicked, David goes on to ask God to give the wicked what they deserve in verse 6. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. David calls for God's wrath. He calls for a fiery judgment upon the wicked. Fire and sulfur may be familiar terms to you. They refer to the way that God judged Sodom and Gomorrah in Abraham's day. And God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is referred to often in Scripture as sort of an analogy or a, a picture of God's future judgment, His final judgment on the last day, which, uh, like in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, is going to come suddenly, and it's going to be comprehensive and complete and final. Fire and sulfur. And then he uses another picture of scorching wind. Uh, Scorching wind is a problem in uh, the the Middle East where uh, David would be writing from. Hot desert winds could be devastating to plants and crops. And 
that sort of devastation is what David is calling for to come upon the wicked, the very judgment and wrath of God. Uh, And notice he says that this fire and sulfur, this scorching wind will be the portion of their cup. Well, this is another picture of God's wrath that is picked up elsewhere in Scripture. Uh, In fact, flip ahead with me a few uh, psalms to Psalm 75. Look at Psalm 75 and verse 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This is the cup, fire and sulfur and scorching wind that David is calling for. David is not threatened by the wicked. The wicked bend their bow. The wicked shoots their arrows, as verse 2 said. But David is still not threatened because he knows that ultimately Yahweh will pour out the cup of his wrath that they deserve. Well, as we come to the last verse We've seen that Yahweh tests the righteous. Why does Yahweh test the righteous? We've seen that he hates the wicked. Why does he hate the wicked? Why does he prepare a cup of wrath? Verse 7, because the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. David's confidence ultimately rests in the character, the righteous character of Yahweh. Because the creator on the throne of heaven is righteous, David can be sure that in the end, those who align with God's righteousness will be preserved, and those who are unrighteous will receive the judgment of God. Yahweh's righteousness is described here uh, in terms of he loves righteous deeds. So David said earlier that God hates the wicked. That's his righteous evaluation of the wicked. Well, here is God's righteous evaluation of righteous deeds. He loves them. And because this is Yahweh's righteous evaluation of righteous deeds, the future of the upright is this. They will see his face. David will, uh, in fact, you can flip ahead to Psalm 17 and verse 15. As for me... I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. This is the great reward of the upright. In the end, the wicked will drink a cup of wrath, but in the end, the righteous will experience the soul-satisfying presence of the God of the universe. The hope of the righteous is not found in society going their way today. The hope of the righteous is that they will walk in intimate fellowship with the glorious God and Creator forever. 
This is why David could say in verse 1 that he takes refuge in Yahweh. This is why he could have such confidence in the face of such dire conditions. He writes Psalm 11 not only to express his own confidence, but he writes it to invite the people of God to share in that confidence, to come and take refuge in Yahweh as he has, to trust Yahweh with their lives, to trust his righteous judgment, to stay faithful in doing the righteous deeds that Yahweh loves and to cling ultimately to the hope of the day that is coming, the day when they will see their God face to face. So, when they hear the pessimist telling them to flee, they follow the lead of their king and say, how can you say that to my soul? I take refuge in Yahweh. Well, what does it look like to take refuge in a righteous God? First, we must take refuge in the righteous king who died for the wicked. Take refuge in the righteous king who died for the wicked. The ultimate reason why the upright can take refuge in God is because of the work of the son of David, Jesus Christ. As God, he was eternally on the throne of heaven. But the righteous God became a righteous man. He lived a life of righteous deeds, a life that no human being could ever live. And he was put to death on a cross. In that moment, the Messiah, the anointed son of David, was pierced by the arrows of the wicked. But there was more going on than that. When he was about to go to the cross... Jesus said to his father in Matthew 26, 39, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus went to the cross so that Yahweh could take the cup of wrath that the wicked deserve and pour it on his son. God looked upon wicked people, wicked people that he had given the righteous evaluation of hatred, and to those people he showed unfathomable love. And because Jesus drank the full cup of the wrath of God for the wicked, any sinner anywhere can find refuge in Yahweh. Any sinner anywhere, any of the wicked who have devoted their lives to deeds that Yahweh hates can be called upright, not because of their own performance, not because they did their work, but because Jesus did his work with a righteousness not their own. All who trust in Jesus can find refuge in him. And you need to understand, we have all broken God's law. We have all sinned against God's law. And if you do not find refuge in Jesus, what awaits you is his wrath. Psalm 2 in verse 12 says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take 
refuge in him. Uh, At the end of the Bible, Revelation 20 describes the end for all who do not trust in Jesus as a lake of fire and sulfur. This is what we all deserve, to drink the cup of the wrath of God ourselves forever. And if we do not find refuge in Jesus, that is what our future will bring us. So when you hear that Jesus drank that cup for us, don't resist him. Put down your bow and arrow and give your life to this Jesus. Bow the knee to this king who died to take the cup of wrath that the wicked deserve. We'll consider another way to take refuge in the righteous God. Embrace the testing of God. Embrace the testing of God. Following Christ is going to be difficult. Jesus promised, in this world you will have trouble. Our society is going to continue to move further away from God. The question is, how will we respond? When we're squeezed by suffering, what is going to come out of us? God wants to use difficulty to burn away that which is worthless and refine us further into the image of Christ. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. I know one of our community groups is walking through 1 Peter, so this will be a familiar passage to you. We don't have time to unpack it, but I hope in the context of what we've already discussed, reading these verses, um, they will speak for themselves. Consider the invitation to find refuge in God by embracing the testing of God and hear Peter say in 1 Peter 1, verses 5 through 9, he describes his readers as those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And get this, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And that leads us to one last way to take refuge in the righteous God. Set your hope on the coming of Christ. If you're in 1 Peter, flip over to 2 Peter 3. We looked at part of this chapter last week, but look at verses 11 through 13 of 2 Peter 3. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for 
and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Set your hope on the coming of Christ. Set your hope on the new heavens and new earth. Set your hope on the day to come. Don't get so fixed on the difficulty of this world that you forget that it's only temporary. Don't waste your energy fearing something wrong today that God is going to make right on the last day. Don't waste your time trying to build something here or preserve something here that God is just going to destroy in eternity. When we set our hope on the coming of Christ, we will invest in that which lasts for eternity. As Peter discusses in these verses, we'll focus our attention on reaching more people with the good news of the righteous king who drank the cup of wrath for wicked sinners. We'll focus on being faithful to do the righteous deeds that the Lord loves so that in this dark world, we can shine like a light for those who do not know the Lord. Live your life today in hope of the day that is coming, the day that John describes in 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So as our society moves further and further away from the values of the Bible, resist the temptation to flee. And instead, take refuge in the righteous God. The people of God can make it in a society that rejects God because the righteous God is on his throne. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you now, we come to you as the God on the throne of heaven. Lord, because of the work Jesus did to take the wrath that we deserved, and if we trust in you, your word says we can approach your throne boldly. And so we come now and ask that you would take the word that we have just heard and that you would plant it deep within us, that you would work its truths into our hearts, that our hearts might be shaped by it and that we might live according to it. Lord, I pray that we would see the reality that you are on the throne and increasingly the temptation to flee would seem ridiculous to us. Lord, that fear would seem increasingly ridiculous to us that we will be so shaped by the truth that you are on the throne that we would have the kind of confidence that David had because he had his refuge in Yahweh. Lord, I pray that we would find confidence even as we see evil sometimes seemingly going unchecked, 
that, Lord, we know that you are a just God and you will right every wrong. And Lord, I pray if you have, uh, if you have saved us by your grace, if you have given us uh, the righteousness of Christ, Lord, that we would devote ourselves to those righteous deeds that you say you love. Lord, not for our glory, not to earn something, but Lord, to shine like a light in the dark world that they may see our good deeds and glorify you in heaven. And Lord, as we walk through uncharted waters, may we keep our eyes on the sky where Jesus will return, when he will right every wrong, when we will see his face, and we will dwell with him forever. We love you and praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.